good evening, or good morning, <laughs> or good afternoon. Welcome yeah. to it's another... It's weird you started with good evening, because it's not even evening, like, present time recording this. But it will be. A, a confused Truman Show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to another edition of Talking Talk, the podcast from the media by us. My name is Brent. I'm here today with Chris. Hello. David. Here we go. TJ. Hi. And we are going to be talking about last week's homework, a uh, little film called Pond's Labyrinth. And, uh... Pond! And we're going to be deciding whether it is talk of fame worthy. TJ? TJ, you want to take us through your uh, assignment? Pass. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Pain's Labyrinth is the uh, 2006 film by Guillermo del Toro. Um, and I guess he's probably the most like financially successful. Well, at this time he was, anyway. Of the, the, the tres amigos. Amigos. The uh, So the movie takes place in post-Spanish uh, Civil War Spain, which I think is interesting, and I'll talk more about that a little later, because that war is... It's an interesting pick for this movie, I think. Um, but it starts off in like a fairy tale land where a princess uh, pretty much leaves the fairy tale land, and when she gets, uh, it's it's the fairy tale land is like under Earth, um, and when she gets to the top of Earth, she has her memory erased by fantastical shit. I think the sun blinds her. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Blinds her memory out of her. Um, so her father, the king, builds all these uh, portals, kind of labyrinths. And hopes that she'll find her way back down at some point. Um, then go to the 1940s Spain. Uh, this little girl and her pregnant mother are going to meet a uh, captain in the military. Who is going to be the girl's stepfather. Because you kind of get a feeling that the mom's not doing too hot. Um, so she's going there to marry him and kind of give him a daughter. Um she sees what she thinks is a fairy, which kind of looks like a bug, but she finds a fairy, uh, ends up going to the labyrinth, one of these portals, and meets Pan, a fawn, who essentially gives her three tasks to see if she's the princess or not. And uh, she kind of goes off completing these tasks. There's one where she goes and meets like a giant frog to uh, get some shit from the frog, a key. She has to you know, go see this monster at one point, fucks up some of that. But it's it's task. That's kind of the plot of the movie. We can talk about that in detail a little later. They're not super relevant to the entire plot. Um, there are rebels attacking throughout Spain, uh, and the captain's job is kind of in the military is to like seek out these rebels and kill them all. He's kind of stationed himself at a mill in the middle of kind of a forest, and the insurgents are in the forests, kind of in the it can kind of been a mountain mountainous area. Yeah. Um, the rest of this I kind of want to leave up. I don't want to go through the plot twice, and I think a lot of this will come up later, so I'm not going to get into a lot of details of, like, the maid was a spy and all this kind of stuff. We'll talk about that as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's got a sad, sad and ambiguous ending as far as the fairy tale part go when those two stories finally merge at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, like, fantastical fairy tale of a movie um, crossed with, like, super hyper-violent wartime mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so violent. Very, very violent. <laughs> yes. Um, there are a bunch of characters that you end up kind of connecting with. Some rebels, some housekeeping people. Definitely the girl. Um, 
not as much the fantastical creatures as much. But uh, that's really kind of all I want to talk about on the initial plot rundown. We'll talk about the ending and some themes, I'm sure, as we go. All right. Well, uh, first off, how many watches is it for each of us? Because it was my second watch. Probably second or third for me, too. Yeah. Multiple for me and David. Yeah, like Fourth or fifth yeah. okay. for me. All right. Well, uh, entertainment value. How did it do? Uh, I definitely remember being very entertained the first time I watched it. I was kind of hooked from the mm-hmm. get-go. Really fun, fun story. Yeah, when you've got a plot device like that of like, you know, answer me these questions three, mm-hmm. and then it's it's always like fun to see like, oh, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Especially when the second one is the pale man. Like, oh, man. It's just like so crazy. Yeah. That whole scene is just gripping. Um, I didn't, I probably didn't like it as much as when I saw it the first time because so much of it is about the discovery of this world. Right. Uh, but I still thought it was entertaining. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same. I remembered uh, uh, just how visceral and dark the current time frame is. I remember it's like, man, this was pretty gory. And I can do gore, but it's so like, there's like viscera and there's torture. The torture's Super, super uncomfortable. Yeah. I guess it's good that it's not gleeful torture. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And guys, I'm a sociopath. I thought it was a laugh riot. (laughs) Um, And yeah, just the... uh, Did we watch the same movie? (laughs) (laughs) Not having seen it in a while, just the the visuals, I think, uh, from what you're talking about, Chris, the first time you watch it is so striking. Especially outside in the real world. uh, It's so just like, everything's like the browns and the grays. Yeah, kind of like stand out a little bit just because they're so, which makes I guess all the fairy tale shit so much more like crazy when you see it for like the feast I remember in the monsters you know like dining area was so like bright and colorful. Yeah, yeah. they did a good job kind of transferring transforming the atmosphere too. Like even when they're driving through the forest to get to the mill, there's like golden sunshine and you can see like the the pollen rising. It's like very golden by the end it ends in rain and gray and damp smoke yeah yeah uh what'd you think bro yeah yeah i i agree with what you all said um maybe the like chris the sense of wonder wasn't there as quite as much now that i've revisited it yeah but it was still it was still plenty entertaining yeah um how did the movie leave you feeling a certain way i mean i guess it's it's hard to not talk about the ending here yeah. So sh- her stepfather um, ultimately shoots her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so her mortal body dies. Brought on by Mercedes, you know, being uh, outed as a spy for the rebels. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And her working directly for the captain. But uh, as the little girl dies, as our heroine dies, she, I guess her blood, like, hits the portal and so which kind of so the third task that the that Pan <clears throat> offered up to her was like bringing uh, some drops of her new baby brother's blood because they need the blood of an innocent blood of an innocent and yeah you're led to believe that her blood was the blood of an innocent which would open up the portal and let her go back upon her death in the world because he, he reveals that the I, final I, test was making a selfless sacrifice 
and right. refusing to give the blood of an innocent, mm-hmm. which is mm. very Ready Player One. <laughs> the challenge may not be what you think it is. Well, I definitely left the first time I watched it, and I still believe this that none of that shit is real, and that's a child trying to deal with living in a horrible world. Mm-hmm. Um, Going through processing. And her dying as kind of a release, because she's not going to have a good life once her mom dies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of done at that point. So her dying is like kind of going to a fairy tale land, heaven or not, whatever you think that would be. It definitely just seemed like it was a story about how this girl was going to escape, and I think she did. Yeah. She had an overactive imagination, and part of when Captain Vidal is kind of more focused on the insurgents, his uh, strategy for dealing with her is just she's alone locked in a dark room, and with an armed guard, if anyone comes in, is supposed to shoot her. So not only does she have overactive imagination dealing with trauma, but she's completely alone. So I get a I, lot of a uh, Chris and Brent won't won't know what I'm referencing here, but if you've seen Tully, and I know David has, I got some Tully themes kind of with with this. Tully reminded me of this movie a little bit mm-hmm. at times, sure, which I thought was fun. Not not fun. The opposite of fun. Unfun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. But yeah. Those questions. <laughs> Next question. What is your name? Um. Well, like, how did so? Did it leave you sort of like bittersweet then? No, I, I think it's one of those. Yeah, yeah, bittersweet's good. That's a good way to describe it. It's a the happiest kind of of possible endings for mm-hmm. her. I felt like, even though it was horribly tragic. Well, let's move to the story, the storytelling. Um, so you have these two things that are kind of side by side, the two stories. There's her her journey through the labyrinth and the, the, the three quests. And then the, the story in Spain, I guess. Yeah. And uh, how do you, did you enjoy, did you like that they were given, the, the did you like the balance of time given to each story? Uh, yeah, I thought, the pacing in that aspect was done really, really well. I was I was always yeah. excited to see whatever they were showing me. Yeah. I think it does a good job of it mires you in the cruelty and misery of the current time period so that whenever you see Pan or a fairy, you're excited again. You're right. always like ready for that to take back off but, rather than being bored with the fantastical element. Yes, yeah. I would agree. Yeah, like like for the girl, even more so than just like the the appeal of it as a as a movie watcher, it it is relief. When you get to it, and you you feel like physically like, like there's a load that's lifted off when you go from the El Capitan uh, basically splitting somebody's hand open, and then you go like, and here's this like bright banquet hall. It's like oh my god, even though this is like a really creepy looking scene, it's way better than what you were watching and all the stress of the insurgency. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So yeah, I liked I, I liked the balance. It felt, I mean, I know that that escapism is definitely one of the surface level themes of this movie, but like that that was my escapism watching it was when it would cut away to the fawn and all that shit. And you do though when they start to blend a little bit on task two, it's a little like me and David were talking pre show about how like gory the fairy death is. Yeah, and like heartbreaking kind of, and it's like directly the girl's fault. Right. Um, it's kind of. You know, n- no pun intended, but bleeding the cruelty of her current life into her fantasy. Right, it's starting to take yeah. over a little bit, maybe. Yeah, yeah. How about the characters? 
uh, character development and whatnot. This will be an interesting one, just because with the fairy tale structure, you're not going to have fully 3D characters. You're going to have like uh, representations, like an innocent virgin maiden damsel. You'll have like the the big bad guy, and uh, kind of some of the best characters this time around were some of the side characters, like the maid who's uh, Mary Bell Verdu from Itimama. Yeah, Mercedes is excellent in in this this viewing. I think the doctor is pretty good. Kind of matter-of-factly going about his thing, and I like his moment of uh, defiance against the the general. Said like that, you're a kind of person who would just do what you say without thinking. I'm, I don't do that. In his kind of final standoff before he knows he's going to be killed. Yeah, and, and a side note in the media bias, like you know, like giving credit where credit isn't always not where credit isn't always due, but where people. Forget to give credit. Yeah, uh, Doug Jones and again like Guillermo del Toro's secret weapon as the pale man and Vaughn. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just great at that. He's great at his job. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about uh, Andy Circus and Terry No Terry. Yeah, a yeah. Lot. He's he's within that. Uh, I think within that strata of just a phenomenal. He's got a skill, a very good yeah. skill. He's really good at. It. Um, how about specific scenes? In the movie that stand out. For me, it's the Pale Man. Yeah. It's the scene of the movie, I think. Yeah. Especially of that story. And I think I think it's it's Guillermo del, del Toro's signature, like, mark. Is he is... He is a, his directorial thrust is he's a man who creates monsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that really is him shining. Yeah. You know, the fawn is good, but I also think we've seen the fawn before in lots of... I mean, it is clearly... Pan's Labyrinth because it's based off you know the the Greek myth of Pan, but right. so that that image is something that, that we can reference. But the Pale Man is just completely his frightening, own. yeah, yeah, with the eyes in his hands and the long just the nails. way he walks too. Yeah, did y'all have a scene you liked in the other story, the war story? I, I mean, I love the 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 ending when the rebels finally get the captain. Yeah, that's, uh, that's and, very striking. If he's just walking up and all of them are there and the you know, it's very uh, predetermined. He knows what's going to happen. But I like the... Yeah, I like that, too. Like, everyone just massing around. Everybody's quiet and just staring at him. Yeah, he hands off his, his son and says, uh, you know, please name him after me. And Verdi raises the gun and says, like, he will, like he'll never know your name. As well as, like, yeah. he's very obsessed with, you know, his says his weakness is pride. And he's obsessed with his lineage of... Mm. He is determined this is going to be his son, and he has his father's watch that it he smashed it on the battlefield so he would know. And uh, they do a great uh, um, great act of cruelty back to him by denying him that his lineage will never continue. This, this legend of battle kind of stops with him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a weird one for me. One scene that I think was just shot incredibly well, and I the grab the practical effects were incredible in this scene. And it's odd for me to say this because my thing is slicing, knife slicing skin, but the Captain's mouth injury scene is just ridiculously shot, I think. Yeah. It, it always stands out to me and it's so good that I can't turn away even though I really want to because I hate watching that shit happen. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Especially when he's like, oh God, when he's about to sew it back up and he, <sighs> he opens his mouth again and it shows it's just such a clean cut yeah. all the way through like Joker scars. It's just, <clears throat> yeah, not not the first 
they got butchered. And then right after drinking the tequila, and it just like <laughs> burns through. You can just like feel how much that burns. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> How'd this movie leave you feeling? Ouchie! What's uh? What's the? What do you think the major theme of the movie is? I already called out the escapism of it, and I think that that is may may not. I don't watch this movie looking much further than that. I'm fine with it. But it's, you know, the the ability of people to cope with difficult situations and where they retreat to. Um, Maybe it's even like Del Toro's just like statement on what movies are in general, which is just like the world around us sucks sometimes. So go to the movies where you can see things that like you don't see elsewhere. Yeah. The Spanish Civil War is an interesting choice. Um, and at the time, I think I thought he was Spanish, Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing he's not, it makes it more interesting because I think he kind of selected this war on purpose. Um, but the sides of the Spanish Civil War are weird. So you had the re- left-leaning Republicans, who were the rebels in the movie, but they were sided with the anarchist and the communist mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so you had the French, the nationalists and the monarchists and the Catholics who were the captain. Um, so it's kind of opposite of how most people think of the sides being now. Like, the good guys in this movie were the anarchist and the communist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, this is the, the captain's, like, military ran Spain until 1970-something. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's interesting that there wasn't really only... It's interesting to pick the Spanish Civil War because there wasn't really a good and a bad side as much as just, like, hell in the country for 30 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's not, like... I don't think you're really rooting for anybody except the girl. Yeah. Ophelia. So, theme two, war is hell. Well, yeah, just, I mean, especially when you start seeing the rebels, like, they're not, they don't end that little battle pridefully. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they're, they're also... They're not the best people. Yeah, I, I think I think that there's there's a there's a good comparison that is made after they rescue Mercedes from when she's run down by the horses. Um, they carry out their tactics the exact same way that the uh, military does, mm-hmm. in that they're walking around. By the way, bullets apparently are so cheap because <laughs> they will kill someone and then put three more shots into them. Yeah, but like they do the same thing where they clear the field by anyone who might be injured or is dead. They'll confirm every kill going by shooting them in the head. Right. And that's that to me showed that they're like, "Oh, they're as brutal as the military. They're just not as well encamped as them." The and the captain might be just a horrible dude. Right. In a fucked up sitch. Also, I, I do think the uh I mean, it's a minor little thing, but it's at uh, in a very small moment. But it's, uh, you know, she's been given these tasks, and she disobeys the third task because she it she just can't bring herself to do something that she feels is wrong, and she winds up getting rewarded for, you know, uh, standing up for what she thinks is right. Yeah, especially after like fucking up and feeling horrible about it in task mm-hmm. two, not wanting to feel that way again. I think is probably, yeah. So, like, Socratic method, definitely in there. Like, don't just blindly obey. We've got that line in the, uh, with the doctor and the captain, and then again with her and the fawn. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm with Chris, and I think all y'all kind of, the the, 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 ma- the major theme is that escapism and, like, just how to best find relief from a, from a city situation. And then as a child is tough. Well, how about the performances in the movie? 
did what what stood out as like great because for me honestly i think it's the i think my favorite performance might be the villain he's, he's really really good, really good. Yeah. yeah and uh mercedes is really good too i think mm-hmm. um i think the, the girl is great um ivana Bacara is her name yeah she definitely doesn't make it any worse well we always talk about like child actors are easy to fucking good child yeah. actors Mm-hmm. And she's great. Obviously, Doug Jones just doing like masterclass of yeah, Pellman's human just, puppetry. Pellman's one of the best original monsters in the past twenty years. I mean, I can't. I mean, he, great creativity on. I mean, that's what Del Toro does. Insanely yeah. creative. Yeah, monster. And like the the really, I know this is not performance, but the really simple storytelling of having the. Uh, uh, the motifs painted on the ceiling of the pale man, like they don't have to show him being a villain or being like this evil creature. Mm-hmm. But then you look up and you see all these scenes of him like impaling babies and biting their heads off and shit. And you see the kid, little kid's shoes, the mound of shoes. Oh, right yeah, there. it's so good. It's almost like uh, like Holocaust visual sense there with the the pile of shoes. Yeah, organized that way. Right. You were talking about performances. Uh, when I mentioned uh, the the. Uh, Captain. The actor it's Sergi Lopez, <gasps> mm-hmm. who will be appearing this year in The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Oh, nice! <laughs> that bonkers. <movie. laughs> I want to do at least say his name besides just saying that guy who played the bad guy. This guy has become more and more like a pile of gravel. <laughs> like he's he's already pretty like pretty like rugged and like like rough hewn, mm-hmm. uh, but he's just gotten more. Craggly and bearded. <laughs> I'm looking at his images now. They do a good job of. Uh, he does a great job with maintaining his vanity while doing uh, monstrous things. Yeah. Um, where some of the uh, monsters in there, I don't know if there's a parallel there. I mean, he's kind of the fourth monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in it, fourth or third or I don't know how you consider fourth. I mean, monsters. I think I think Pan's a monster. I think the Toad's a monster. Pillman. Yeah. And I think for for if it's if it's about you know slaying the beast the fairy tale, I think the third one is trying to see if she will become a monster, for the third test. Is she no better than the human she's trying to escape from? Yeah. Uh, let's get to the uh, section that's uh, always fun for Del Toro: the technical side of the movie, visual effects, and I mean, cost. Well, I guess slash makeup, slash. Uh, Costumes and whatnot, fantastic. Yeah, on both yeah. sides, both sides of the movie, mm-hmm. the practical effects and the wartime stuff, and the crazy, you know, fantastical shit in the underworld, just a plus all around. Also, mm-hmm. really good set design too for like the the sort of uh, what type of place is it where they're living? It's a mill. A mill. Okay, but, it's, but they're living like in the manor that is like attached to the mill. Okay. But, like, the manor, the grounds, yep. and then the labyrinth, too, like, out in the woods. I think everything really David cool. was sitting on early with that change of scenery, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the production design in between both stories was done to perfection, really. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go, David? <laughs> see. Uh, <laughs> see. Anything about the score stand out to you? I think the score is, uh, yeah, really good. Something that really... Uh, uh, stood out this on this watch, just because uh, if they're doing a fairy tale, just the lullaby motif that kind of yeah. keeps going through, 
it ends up being the thing that uh, um, Mercedes is humming to her. She's cradling her while she's dying. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool to see where that came from. Uh, this is my viewing of that's where it came from in her kind of dream state of as she's kind of leaving the earth is uh, pulling from that throughout the whole movie. Even like when I was about to press play on there, I just remembered the do 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 do. Yeah, it's mm. pretty pretty iconic for me. The guy really didn't do much. Uh, Javier uh, Navarrete mm. uh, did the Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, which got him an Oscar nom. But other than that, it's a lot of like Spanish TV. Yeah, he was nominated for score, but lost to uh, Babel Guy Gustavo Santolalo, which is a great score. Great score. Yep. Uh, of those involved with this movie, would this be anyone's number one achievement, you think? I mean, it's it's kind of hard to say for the actors, well, or, or easy to say for the actors. The one that we can say is I think that, that, that we would probably... We, we I think we, we have a good shot at picking one of two of Maribel Verdu's best works, because we've seen the two that at least stateside has gotten her the most acclaim. I think she's I think she is better in Itumama Tambien. I think so, too. But then again, I, that, you know, does not besmirch this movie. It's just... She has a great role in Ichimama. Yeah. She, she does have a lot of agency in this movie that she doesn't have as much of in the other one. Well, I guess it reveals in the end she kind of does in Ichimama. Right. But, uh, yeah, I like her being able to play both sides in this movie. Mm -hmm. She is kind of shifty, though, even when she's, like, following orders. I don't know. I'm, I'm gonna, I might have been onto her a little earlier than at the very end. <laughs> But I guess you know, that's part of his weakness was his vanity. And she says, like, it's because I was a woman I was invisible to you. Because mm -hmm. you don't consider me an equal. Um, but, I think she's pretty dang good in that. But where does this rank for Del Toro? This it's is a big question. Well, by far my favorite Del Toro film. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm not like, even... Do we want to run through what he did? I mean, I, we done. can do it real quick. He, didn't, he hadn't done a shit done. Has anybody seen Cronus? No, that's like a... Hyped up as like one of those underrated... Yeah. I've seen Mimic. It's not. Yeah, Mimic's okay. Yeah, I haven't seen The Devil's Backbone. Yeah, me neither. Um, Blade Two. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's probably the best of the Blade movies. Uh, Hellboy's underrated, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's not on this level either. No. Um, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy Two. It's fun. Uh, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Golden uh, Pacific Rim is cool. Pacific Rim is awesome. Yeah. Did he direct uh, there or he just produced? I think he directed. He directed okay. It, yeah. yeah. Um, Crimson Peak was not great. But visually it was visually really cool, but not a great movie. And then if his last film is the best picture winner. Shape of Water. Shape of Water. But uh, in that case, I guess yeah, I guess I'm picking this. Yeah. Yeah, I'd go Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim. I probably would too. <laughs> but I haven't seen some of the early Pacific ones. Rim would be third for me. I'd I'm, like to see the Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone. Backbone. Yeah, that and Kronos. I want to see both of those. Yeah, but out of what I've seen, it's clearly Pan's Labyrinth for me. Yeah, it would probably have Hellboy too for me. Yeah, maybe Shape of Water underneath that. Well, at the very least, this feels like the most the most Del Toro movie. Like if you, it does put together all those things like, that he's known for. I mean, yeah, of. it's like where do you start with Del Toro? Well, you start with Pan's Labyrinth. That's where I would point. It. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's, and it's very mm -hmm. am, you know when you talk about ambition with him. There's a lot of the. Movies on here that are probably a lot more visually ambitious, but story-wise ambitious to do a serious Spanish Civil War um, parallel. While this is going on, probably took some uh, took some cojones from his. Yep. I think I don't think there's anything in his background that suggested he could really pull that off. 
mm. a period piece about war and make a fairy tale at the same time. Dark fairy tale. Goddamn. Doug Jones has been in Mimic, Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy 2, Crimson Peak, and The Shape of Water. And Monkey Bone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was this movie financially successful? And I can answer that. It was. It was a budget of nineteen million dollars. It made eighty three million dollars. The box Nin- office. Nineteen. I saw. Yeah, it's so cheap for yeah. what he accomplished. I saw this movie in like Conyers, Georgia, which is about forty miles outside of Atlanta. So the fact that that movie was playing in Conyers, Georgia, <laughs> tells me it was a financial success. It'll, it'll get me foreign films out that way. <laughs> Um, let's see, what was the next question? I, I did kind of see the budget at, at one point. There, uh, the explosions off in the yeah. distance had a very Photoshop quality to them. Yeah. Which is like, again, that's not like the main point of it. Right. But. And there's a little bit of uh, the budget kind of stretching a little bit with the Toad. The Toad isn't... You almost wished he would have done it a little more practical. Yeah. I mean, the, the goo at the end that he turns into with all the, the bugs and stuff is yeah. pretty pretty visceral, but the... The CGI toad mm-hmm. is, is a little he th- lifeless. He threw his money into the pill, man. He knew where yeah. his, like... Yeah. yeah. Did, it, did this get a nod for, like, costume design or, or makeup? I think that might be the next question, Brent. <laughs> Chris answered yours. Um, it got nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Makeup, and Best Score. All right. Hmm. I was watching it going, like, I don't understand the makeup and hair guilds, but I really hope that this got makeup. Uh, that's interesting, though. It's a foreign language nom- nominee. It didn't win, um, but it won three other Oscars. It's yeah. probably very rare. Uh, it won for art direction, cinematography, and makeup. It'd be like if Crouching Tiger didn't win best foreign language. Right. You know, where it's. What won that know, year? I think, was it The Lives of Others? I think yeah. I remember reading that when I watched this. I remember resenting yeah. that movie because, like, how could that beat Pan's Labyrinth? But I ended up watching it. It's actually pretty good. It's really good. I, I, I watched it in actually in a film class in college. Um, it is the lives of others. Yeah. Also, I took a film class in college. <laughs> <laughs> um, this. Uh, do you think this is an important movie in terms of influence? Uh, I mean, obviously, it's important in that it launched a. Del Toro's career, I guess, or at least it didn't launch his career. to the next level. Yeah, I think he, yeah. yeah, he was launched. I think this gave him the um, the respectability to make something like Shape of Water. Kind of do whatever you want. You gotta yeah. get a free pass for a little while. He yeah. doesn't have to do like uh, genre movies like uh, like Blade or Hellboy anymore. Even if they, I'm not saying those are bad, but I'm just right, saying, right, right. He gets to do genre movies he wants. Yes. Yeah, and I'm gonna stick with anything. I just. I, I, and I might a little more than y'all three. I think you know Quaron, Inaritu, and Del Toro are super important now and moving forward. They're just constantly making incredible movies. That anything they did in around this era where they kind of got launched into stardom um, is going to be important to film history, especially moving forward. And this is like Babel era and Azkaban era. I mean, these are like huge movies that got them able to make Gravity and The Revenant and Birdman and. Yeah, you know. Yeah, the, yeah, this is their golden year because it's Children of Men for Koran, it's Babel, yeah. it's Pan's Labyrinth. It's <clears throat> they're all very good movies. Yeah, I think, <laughs> it's the blank check for the rest of their kind of careers. Yep. that do whatever they want. And this is the first step of funded. that. Yeah, yeah. I think they're probably some of the most probably this trio's 
some of the most influential living filmmakers right now. I'd agree. They're a a step above everybody who has who you know started making movies after 1990. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anybody that's real close to them. I think Tarantino is probably on their level. Tarantino's up there. I mean, he's probably or, or or at the very least he's seen on their level. Yeah, that's true. The thing is, these guys are more prolific than that. Than to the Tarantinos of the world. They're to directing and what Tarantino is to the writing world, I think. Mm-hmm. I think Tarantino is probably held in re- higher regard for writing than he should be. Yeah, but the, the visual sense of these three filmmakers, I think that's super influential and makes them some of the most important filmmakers right now. Yeah. I mean, even going back, I'm going to leave Roma out because this fits my narrative better, but going back to like Birdman... You know, The Revenant, Shape of Water, like, that's not something that Tarantino or Spike Lee or anybody's going to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Make those kind of just gorgeous, like, technical achievement movies. Yeah. Yeah. Who's the uh, the, the French director I like? Michel Gondry? No, maybe it's Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's on that. He's up there. He's on that path. But he's he's just nowhere close to... To these three, I don't think right now. He's probably going to get there with... Dan. Hopefully. Dan. None. Say it's Dan. Dan's just, just trying to go through Hollywood and cast who thinks they're the most beautiful people. Come on, Dan. <laughs> no more rain. Spice up your life. <laughs> Dune. Uh, that's the tag. I'm not seeing it. Spice World. All right, is this one of is this one of the best movies in its genre? Is this one of the best Spanish Civil War fantasy children's <laughs> movies, but not for children? No, I actually like. No, I don't know any others. You know, I've, I've turned a little bit in this consideration. Um, I used to think like uh, when we micro genre it a little bit, it's like of course it's it could be the leader of whatever. But I think that's important. Like the. Any movie that comes out nowadays is not just a drama or not just a comedy. Genre is so like interlinked with the movies that are coming out today that I think it's uh, I think it's interesting to say the micro genres it's kind of the leader of. So what is this one's like? But like non jokey micro. Genre. I'd say it's dark fairy tale. Would be the the best I could, I could come up with. Like, yeah. What's another like a horror slash fairy tale? Right. Yeah, because the the elements of horror that this movie has it nails. I mean, when she's trying to escape from the pale man, there is a sense of dread, dread, yeah, terror. Yeah, um, and, and kind of piggybacking off what David said, I think the joke we all laughed at that Brett made of like, is it the best fantasy Spanish Civil War <laughs> movie? Like, well, it's cool that this movie. In 2006, like, a hundred years into movies being made, did something that had literally never been done. Mm-hmm. That's also points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just, like, Dark Fairy Tale alone, like, this might... I, I'm having trouble thinking of something else, even though I know I've seen them. You know what I mean? Just, like, dark fantasies. So, like, maybe a good example would be, like, Never Ending Story-ish. Sure. Yeah. Labyrinth. Labyrinth. It's not that dark, but yeah, it's pretty pretty cheeky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do we do labyrinth movies. <laughs> yeah, movies with labyrinths. I guess that's the layout. <laughs> well, any any uh, kind of kids movie where there's you can feel real danger. Yeah, I like Never Ending Story, like the Spiderwick Chronicles. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Agent Cody Banks. Uh, Inkart. <laughs> Inkart. <Okay>. Fuck. <laughs> the Page Master. Nine. <laughs> They're probably kids in that. The Dale Day Lewis musical? <laughs> <laughs> the other nine. Okay. God. Watch that movie. The movie's fucking weird. but while the Rainy story holds a special place in my heart I think Pan's better than all those things we just mentioned probably yes you say so (laughs) maybe the movie is kind of a throwback and being a fairy tale it's not a movie really see a lot being taken seriously at at, uh, not at our level but at like an adult level yeah and it's it is very rare to see it taken so darkly, you know. Like most fairy tales you see, just are bubblier, right? Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Well, has it aged well? I think with a movie so visually, you know, like so visual, I think it it's an important question to ask. Has the the visual effects aged well? Have they? But, uh, the good the good ones have. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, uh, I think it was very shrewd in picking a period setting for this. I think it, it makes it timeless like that. Whereas you could have had, like, she was in the, I don't know, the favelas, and there was a crime lord instead of a captain in a mill. Like a, uh, you know, a drug kingpin. Yeah. You could, have, you could easily translate it to... Present day, but I think it being in, in a period setting kind of yeah sets it apart. Yeah. Also, I'll ap- applaud him for his uh, practical effects and his restraint in an in an era when it was just really tempting to just CGI. Like th- th- that was like we don't quite have it figured out yet, we, right? But <laughs> there's a lot of really bad CGI from like 2002 to 2008. Uh, some of the yeah, I mean, some of the Spider-Man CGI is just horrible to watch. I thought you were going to talk about Spider-Man Chronicles again. <laughs> um, Don't you dare open the door for me again. <laughs> Do you want to know about the order? Alright, so. Should it be in the talk of fame? That is the question. I want to give him one more piece of uh, kind of kudos here for making the film for him. I think a lot of people, including me, when they saw it for the first time, didn't really know that that wasn't like it's just a guy who makes foreign films but like that's not his thing mm-hmm. you know he's got like two most of them are English language sure so uh, to have this movie that you know I think it was a, it's a fun creative choice because he probably could have made another hundred you know maybe not a hundred million but another like 30 or 40 million dollars by having it in English mm-hmm. so props said it during like the World War Two or something. It's another reason why I think the Spanish Civil War was a conscious choice of the war for him. Mm-hmm. But all right, the, the cultural pride of his, uh, you know, his cinema. He's trying to um, right. Does anybody have any concerns about the movie before we vote? Any questions? Any like last minute things you want to clear up? Hey, Guillermo, does she actually go to the fairy tale at the end? <laughs> she, I th- I'm going to say she does. What, what do y'all think? You think she does? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm buy into the, the, to the fairy tale. What do y'all think? It's my I think, choice. I think she dies. Yeah. And it's part of that. I think it leads into the theme of the escapism, of that's how she's escaped the, I guess the the horror of her life. Yeah, like I said, it's a re- relief either way. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, <clears throat> I 
I try and think of kind of being a little too realist about it. I try to think of like what points did the two uh, did the two things come together? Did the two worlds collide? And the only thing that I can think of is the uh, the mandrake root, the plant that dreamed it was a person. It puts under the and like bed. That's the only time another character interacts with her world, with her fantasy world, and that is enough. For me, even though it's like motionless, that's enough for me to to say, you know what? Maybe the fairy tale was real. Maybe it was not a fairy tale. I don't think it matters either way. You do have Captain Vidal looking at the very end in the middle of the labyrinth. She's talking to Pan, and he's seeing her talk to nothing. Right. But maybe it's just he can't see. Yeah. Because she's him. she's the princess, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he does like physically pull. I mean, that mandrake grows roots into that bowl. Yeah, like through and the, it does help her mom get better briefly. It could, yeah, something does. Yeah, yeah. the doctor is surprised. She, her health probably could have just turned for the better, but sure. I'm gonna believe it. I think I think that kind of, uh, kind of that parabola hypotenuse intersection there, like is is enough for me. It gets so close without actually like confirming or denying that I'm gonna just personally I like it better as confirmed. Mm-hmm. I have a little question. Uh, with Shape of Water, you know, the whole thing was, like, he loves monsters. That's who he connected with since he saw Frankenstein when he was a little boy. But to me, this is one of his movies where the monsters are the least uh, human. There's the least going on with him. Mm-hmm. Do you guys think that there's something to that? The Pale Man, there's no, there's no real characterization there. Even the Fawn is kind of always at arm's length from connecting with Ophelia... And kind of just a conduit to go to the actual people of her, you know, the mythical queen and king. Hmm. Um, the frog is has no humanity. It's just a CGI monster. Yeah, I think I think a lot of this is his, like, childhood. You know, his, like, famous quote of, like, when my parents or when my friends told me there were monsters under my bed, I got real excited mm-hmm. that there were monsters under my bed. Like, I wanted to meet them. Yeah. Um... So I think this might be a little bit of his childhood coming out in the girl, um, where she sees these things and she's not instantly terrified of this 12 foot fawn mm-hmm. talking right. to her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That she goes up and talks to it and kind of pushes back a little bit when it gives her shit. And, um, I think that, that's just knowing what I now know about Del Toro's, you know, love of monsters. It, it, that's the characterization. I mean, the story's not that right mm. there's we're, we're 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 led to believe that there's a choice we get to make on if this is real or not at the end of the movie so right. developing these f- characters which may not even be real to anybody but this little child um might take away from that a little bit i don't know hmm. like if those characters are developed it might steer you in a direction that he didn't want to steer the watcher sure I guess the monsters are set up as they're a challenge to her rather than uh, they're kind of helping her or assisting her. She's got to kind of prove herself. That's why even at the beginning and throughout the end, the fawn is kind of prickly with her. It's kind of uh, jerky a little bit. Yeah, super pissed when she eats the grapes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's It's a good question. All right. It is. Time to vote. <laughs> <laughs> Wentworth, you're up. 
Uh, I mean, yes. I think that's probably pretty obvious at this point, so I'll start it off. Uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, a top achievement by one of the greatest directors that's in their prime at the moment. So, pretty easy yes for me. Chris. I mean, yes, also. I think it's just a fantastic movie. Um, fantastical and fantastic. Uh, I haven't seen... We talked about like the micro-genre-ization that we do sometimes. And thinking about this, like that, I can't put it anywhere. It's just so unique in kind of what it has to say about, you know, about just like war and conflict and like the role and the importance that like your imagination can play in helping you just not become a monster like Captain Videl, <clears throat> who his whole life, his imagination has always been, and his goal has always been, I want to be like my father who died in battle. Mm-hmm. But with her, she's like, I want to escape to a place that's like great and fantastic. Like that, I really like that juxtaposition, and it's a, it's, it's a cool one to see those kind of buttressed against the, uh, um, the, the extreme violence and the uh, kind of. Still horrifying, but like beautiful fairy tale imagination land. And I, I, I like that this movie does that, and I don't think I've seen it elsewhere. I think it, it's probably easy for the movie to mishandle the story in, in another person's hands or in another at bat. Um, to be repelled by the violence and the cruelty and the tragedy, and you know, kind of, you could also be you know, grotesqued out by the shit that happens even in the fantasy realm. Mm-hmm. The frog is gross. Yeah, I think it's the best thing Guillermo's ever done, and from the Three Amigos, I think we'll probably end up having, not that this means anything, we'll probably have multiple entries by Cuaron mm-hmm. and uh, Inuritu by the end. I don't think El Del Toro, current output, has another shot. From what I've seen, I would agree. Not that every director deserves to get in sure. at least one, but I don't know. I mean, yes. I think degree of difficulty here is bigger than you think when you're when thinking about this movie, just because of the two timelines and, mm-hmm. like I said, the the tone, atmosphere, and all that. It's a yes for me as well. It, I have a hard time putting my my finger on exactly why it's a yes for me but it's just a movie i I just get that feeling while i'm watching it that sort of like i'm watching something special yeah when I watch it's a very movie. special movie and um it's kind of more than the sum of its parts one of those kind of movies yeah I, I, yeah when you start getting into the nuts and bolts of it it's I, I had a hard time really trying to say what was what was amazing about it beyond you know some visuals here and some some thematic points there but I agree. It's greater than the sum of its parts, and it's just a it's a very special movie. And uh, I don't know if it's one of my very favorite movies, but uh, maybe it's because I've only seen it twice. Um, maybe more repeat viewings. It is interesting it to not to more. lump all three of them in together, but now that we've got Babel in the talk of fame and E2 Mama in the talk of fame, and this now, this one is definitely harder to just like spend forty minutes talking with you all about why this movie is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, it is easier to talk about YouTube Mama and Babel. It's mm-hmm. kind of like taking apart a magic trick. Right. Because it really is. The final thing is just like the wow and the, the sense you get. And, uh, yeah, you kind of just have to let it be magical. Do you have a, uh, a favorite of the three Amigas that you personally just sort of dig their movies the most? 
So, until recently, my favorite was Del Toro because he made my favorite movie, which was this. Um, but, goddamn, man, they've been on fire the past few years. You know, kind of like Gravity On has just been, especially in Ritu and Koran. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's hard to not pick Inaritu as my favorite right now, only because to do Birdman and Revenant back to back is fucking ridiculous. Like, I don't know how he survived that <laughs> its experience. Um, but to make Birdman, which is a, one of the best movies of the decade for me, and then to immediately go and do Revenant, which I thought was a little overrated, but still very good. Yeah, incredible and uh, really well done by him and Leo, especially. Uh, and the way I read about I mean, I think we all know kind of how they shot that movie, which mm. is fucking absurd. Um, and, you know, with the way that like, global warming was happening at the time, and, like, they had to go, like, like, south of Patagonia in Argentina to film this thing to find the amount of snow he wanted. Leo said it was just fucking miserable. He was just out in the frozen tundra for, like, a month, like, without a trailer. And then he was just like, I'm not being that guy, like, where's my trailer? But, like, I've been in the trailers my whole life when I film movies. Now I'm in a fucking tent and it's four degrees outside. <laughs> this sucks. Um, so, I'd probably be getting a retweet right now is my favorite. Chris, what about you? I think so, too. He's also got, like, two of my absolute favorite foreign film well not that Babel's necessarily a foreign film but uh you know Babel is one of my all time favorite movies and Beautiful is probably one of the most underrated movies of I want to watch I want to watch that so bad and I'm so terrified (laughs) yeah um you know really gives me great appreciation for Javier Bardem in that uh the way that you appreciate what Leo had to go through for Revenant except Leo's struggles are more physical, and Bardem's are so fucking emotional. I'm uh, Quaron. I think he's the most versatile of the three amigos. To do uh, to do kids' fair seriously, like the Harry Potter movie. I just rewatched it. A so good, weeks man. Ago. Man, it is so head and shoulders above anything else in that series. <laughs> and just to do Children of Men, which is great science fiction dystopian thriller. Ridiculous camera work. Yeah. Movie. Just to all the stuff he does, E2 Mama, just I think he goes all over the place and is uh he's yeah, he's my favorite. Yeah, for me I think it's Quaron as well. It's uh there are, he's got like five movies that I would consider voting yes on in the yeah. talking things. We'll Maybe that. more. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I mean if we didn't have our weird self imposed five year rule, I wouldn't blink without putting uh Birdman in. I know that's in too, but Roma too. Yeah. I'd probably sit on Roma a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's just so fresh. But mm-hmm. Birdman, I wouldn't hesitate. Right. But yeah. All right. Well, sorry, Del Toro. You didn't win that, but you, <laughs> you got your movie under the talking Consolation prize. <laughs> the thing everybody wants. You'll get your plastic trophy at some point. We'll send one of these trivia trophies I got. Uh, I feel like y'all like Del Toro more than most people whose movies we put in. I bet he'd be like actually just a little bit delighted. Just be like, yeah. He would be very, like, very thankful, I Yay, feel like. Yay, thank you. <laughs> I feel like that's what he would do. Um, he'd probably also be like, yeah, the, my two friends are slightly better than me. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> I like their movies too. Yeah. Um, all right, well, there you have it. The uh, Payne's Labyrinth has been inducted into the Talk of Fame. Congratulations. Hallmark. Hallmark. Who's doing Hallmark? Hallmark. Don't want to go Hallmark. (laughs) (laughs) 
By the way, this this pen, this entire podcast, I've been trying to draw eyes on my hands, but this pen, stupid pen's out of ink. So, or it won't draw. This one. <laughs> Bang the microphone. So. Well, it's too late now. It's not out of ink. I know it's not. It. It's weird. It just won't. My my skin is ink resistant. Goes on mine. Dear Bick, why don't you write on my hand? <laughs> Dear Bick, don't be a dick. Wait, are we about to talk about Inkheart? Did you guys open the door for Inkheart? Quick, David. <laughs> Say anything uh, but Inkheart. <laughs> or Spiderwick Chronicles. <laughs> Any other movies. I think uh, I was leaning between two, but I think I'm going to go towards uh, emotional torture. And tackling something that's one best picture. Um, one 1969. Uh, uh. <laughs> that's right, we're getting X-rated. X-rated with Midnight Cowboy. So I should not watch this at work. You can. Good luck. <laughs> where, you, where do you work? <laughs> Alright, well there you have it. Midnight Cowboy streaming on... Uh, I think it's Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Word. And Hoopla or something. <laughs> Watch on Prime. You made that one up. If you prefer one. Hoopla. Uh, all right, well, there you have it. That's your homework. This is Talk to Talk. Streaming on G.vid. <laughs> Some bullshit. Uh, podcast for the media by us. Join our Facebook groups. Email us. Tweet, tweet with us. Interact with us some way. Just, you know... <laughs> Flag us down on the side of the road or something. Uh, Hey, have you seen this movie? (laughs) (laughs) We'd love to hear from you. Chris Farley interviews. Remember that time y'all watched that movie? That was awesome. That was really cool. (laughs) Uh... (laughs) This is fucking horrible. Horrible way to do a podcast. I'm deleting all of this. There's going to be no outro. We're, we're going to say yes, and then it's just going to be Boo Reefa. Well, let's at least thank the Will Walkers. Thank you, at thank least. Thank you. Boo Thank you, at least. And subscribe and rate us. Bye. Bye. Kicking rocks down old dusty roads. Small town slowpokes long time ago. Kicking out records of all the things that I know All the things that I know